Welcome back once again. Journeys into Whiteness, the podcast that just won't quit. I'm your host, as always, Jimmy Lincoln. This is episode eight. It's hard to believe I've even made it this far, but we've got plenty more episodes to come, plenty more stories to tell, plenty more journeys down the path that is whiteness in America in 2020. Episode 8, and for those of y'all who have been listening throughout all the preceding episodes already know this, Episode 8 is going to pick up where Episode 7 left off. In Episode 7, I began to explore and dissect and analyze a textbook from the state of Virginia that was used in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and in some cases even into the 80s a fourth grade social studies textbook entitled Virginia's History, a textbook written, not incidentally, by my grandfather. And so that's how this textbook fits into the overarching theme of me taking a personal journey into whiteness. And I haven't yet discussed kind of my own feelings about my grandfather, at least not in any real depth, and how those feelings have intersected with my feelings about this textbook. But we'll get to that. And before we get to all that, I want to make sure we really understand this textbook at kind of a granular level. And we understand how this textbook was used to shape the way Virginians thought about their past and their present. Because I think if we can understand the lost cause mythology that so many Southerners, so many Virginians, so many white Americans were taught for so long, then it's easier for those of us who are seeking racial justice in the present, who are seeking reparations in, in all of its forms. It's easier for us to understand those people who oppose these things. And if we can understand them, then I think we can more easily persuade them to take a path of justice and not a path of Resistance based on ignorance, not an emotional reaction to what we're asking them to do. And I just mentioned that phrase, lost cause, and I think that phrase came up in episode seven. And if it didn't, it'll come up in this episode and future episodes. And I want to make sure before I dive back into my grandfather's textbook that we all understand what this phrase means, because it's something you'll hear bandied about a lot. And specifically, Lost Cause is a phrase that originated with a book that was written immediately after the end of the Civil War. This book was written by a Southerner, a man named Edward Pollard, a Virginian, not coincidentally. And in 1866, he published a book entitled The Lost Cause, A New Southern History of the War of the Confederates. So that's where the phrase has its genesis, its origins. But when people today use that phrase, they're referring to a whole set of beliefs and archetypes and themes that many white Americans, and occasionally maybe even some black Americans, hold on to, whether they realize it or not. And so I'm going to read from an article that literally was just published today in the New York Times. And I want to quote from this article because it does a better job than I could ever dream of, of describing not only Pollard's book, but more importantly, the themes of his book that may have originated in 1866, but that have been perpetuated generation after generation up until the present. Because this lost cause mythology, this This notion that I'm going to read to you in a second of the South being this honorable land where everything was 
was perfect or nearly perfect really undergirds a lot of white supremacist notions today. So let me read what Mr. Meacham is saying about Mr. Pollard's book and the ideas contained therein. Here then was the ur text of the lost cause of the mythology of a South that believed its pro-slavery war aims were just, its fate tragic, and its white supremacist worldview worth defending. In our own time, the debates over Confederate memorials and the resistance in many quarters of white America, especially in the South, to address slavery, segregation, and systemic racism can in part be understood by encounters with the literature of the lost cause in the history of the way many white Americans have chosen to see the Civil War and its aftermath. So when you hear me and you hear other commentators using that phrase lost cause or the phrase lost cause mythology, what they're often referring to is everything contained in that paragraph. And I'll just point out before we jump into the textbook that Mr. Meacham mentioned at the end of that paragraph can be understood by encounters with the literature of the lost cause in the history of the way many white Americans have chosen to see the Civil War and its aftermath. My grandfather's textbook is a prime example, is a dictionary definition example of literature of the lost cause. And he himself as a historian is a 20th century archetype of someone who has chosen to see the Civil War through the lens of Pollard's lost cause ideology, through the lens of Pollard's lost cause mythology. So I just share that with all my listeners today so that we can contextualize even deeper what it is that I'm doing with this textbook. The only small quibble I would have with what Mr. Meacham just wrote about Pollard's book and about the mythology that kind of arises out of it is that I'm going to let some people off the hook a little bit. Because at the end of that paragraph, he says, many white Americans have chosen to see the Civil War in its aftermath. And I would make the argument that it wasn't really a choice. That when you attend school in Virginia and throughout the South, and in many cases throughout the country, but these examples of lost cause literature show up in the curriculum of Virginia's public schools, and Southern public schools in general more frequently than they did in other states. When you attended schools in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and even into the 80s, and in fourth grade and seventh grade and 11th grade, you were required to take courses on the history of your state, on the history of your country. And when those courses were designed around texts that presented a single narrative of American history, then in many ways, your understanding of American history wasn't a choice. Now, I'm not letting you white Americans off the hook too quickly, however, because even though that might have been how you were taught when you were younger, you now have the ability as an adult to reflect back on how you were taught, to hold yourself accountable for what was taught to you and the beliefs that you allowed to grow out of what you were taught and either change or not change. And that's kind of what this whole podcast is about, right? I'm trying to model as best I can how to do that reflecting, and then you can decide what to do with that self-reflection. Obviously, I hope that self-reflection will lead you down a path of justice and racial reconciliation and a path towards fighting for racial equity in this country, something that we've never had, but something that I do believe is achievable. But it's up to you. It is The choice is ultimately yours. So with all that intro laid out, let's jump back into my grandfather's book. And if you might recall, episode seven, we left off. America wasn't even America yet. We left off right around the year 1700. And we were discussing how my grandfather described slavery in the colonies. And all the problematic language he used and all of the different ways that he obscured the true nature of slavery, everything from totally ignoring the Middle Passage and the trauma that the Middle Passage wrought on millions of people to completely ignoring how slaves were treated throughout the South. And in this case, because we're still talking about the, the British colonies, throughout the 13 colonies, slavery was legal in all 13 colonies. 
So now let's move ahead in history a little bit. We're getting into the revolutionary era, which is a large, significant chunk of my grandfather's textbook, which makes sense because there are many prominent white Virginians in America's revolutionary history, in the war for independence that America fought against the British Empire. And the first thing I need to point out is that he devotes a lot of ink to various famous white American revolutionary heroes, people that I guarantee you all my listeners or almost all of my listeners are familiar with. Patrick Henry, George Mason, James Madison, Thomas Jefferson. All get standalone chapters about their contributions to revolutionary slash early American history. And throughout all of that, even though all those men I just mentioned were slave owners, the only mention of slavery in these nearly 100 pages about these men is this sentence in a chapter about George Mason. And this sentence is very, very short. The children, he's referring to George Mason's children, the children had servants to wait on them and tutors to teach them, period. That's it. And we've talked about how my grandfather used that word servant frequently, when in reality, what he means are enslaved people. But servant really allows your reader and your audience off the hook, right? Servant is such a benign word when compared to slave that it doesn't force your audience to do any kind of moral reckoning, or at least not the level of moral reckoning that the word slave or enslaved person does. So basically, we see a total erasure of slavery from the lives of these quote-unquote revolutionary American heroes. And if that were not bad enough on its face, which it's a tremendous sin. It's a tremendous historical sin to not mention slavery when discussing these men, these men who all of them owed their economic livelihoods and in some cases their social standing to the existence of a system of slavery, a racialized system of slavery. If that erasure is not bad enough on its face, what makes it even worse is that all of these chapters, the chapters on George Mason, the chapters on Patrick Henry, the chapters on James Madison, and the chapters on Thomas Jefferson, focus on how these men so dearly loved and valued and articulated their love and value for liberty. I'll give you an example, and this is similar to how we ended up episode seven. I think many of you who are faithful listeners will recognize some some themes being repeated. Here is what my grandfather says about George Mason. George Mason, for those of y'all who aren't history nerds, bless those of y'all who are, special place in my heart for my tribe. But for those of y'all who aren't history nerds, George Mason was a key figure, a leading figure in Virginia's revolutionary era politics. He authored or co-authored Virginia's constitution that was written on the subsequent to the American Revolution, actually probably written while the revolution still ongoing. He authors Virginia's Declaration of Rights, which heavily influences Jefferson's Declaration of Independence. So Mason is a key ideologue, a key scholar in crafting this idea of what America not only is, but more importantly, wants to be, or how America wants to think of itself as it's this new country being born out of the American Revolution. Here's what my grandfather said about Mason and his, his beliefs. George Mason wanted Virginia's constitution to tell what rights the people had so that their rights could never be taken away. He believed that every man, woman, and child was important. Mason cared about the rights of all the people. Think about that. If you include a sentence like that, and you don't talk about how George Mason owned 
slaves? Think about the distorted version of American history that you're providing to your audience. And that's that that kind of distortion is repeated. It's repeated with Madison. It's repeated most grossly with Thomas Jefferson. Because not only is Jefferson a slave owner, but we know for a fact with incontrovertible, I think that's a word, sounds good. We know based on DNA evidence that not only was Thomas Jefferson a slave owner, but that he's a rapist, right? His relationship with Sally Hemings can't be understood as anything other than rape. But none of that's even mentioned. And so you get a very clear theme in this textbook when talking about the American Revolution. You get very much the idea that America is the land of the free and the home of the brave. Period. Full stop. When in reality, the story of the American Revolution and the story of America writ large is much more dichotomous. It's not just the land of the free and the home of the brave. It's the land of the free and the home of the brave where so many hands are not free because their bones are enslaved. The land of the free and the home of the brave where so many hands are not free because their bones are enslaved. That's the story that is America. Liberty and freedom coexisting contradictorily with enslavement. And to not tell both parts of that story is to provide a distorted view to your audience. So now it's becoming easier for us listeners today in 2020 to understand how if generations of Americans are being fed this version of American history, how it's going to shape their political views in the present. Now let's move on to the great American history, George Washington, another Virginian, another Virginian slave owner. And yet, to my grandfather's credit, he doesn't, in the case of George Washington, dodge that. There's an entire, there are multiple chapters on George Washington, first of all. And there's an entire chapter on life on Washington's plantation of Mount Vernon. And it's told mostly from the perspective of Washington's grandchildren. And it's a brilliant piece of literature because for a book designed for fourth graders to have part of it narrated by someone who is their age provides a great keyhole for your young audience, right? It allows them to better identify with the events going on in the book. So chapter 20 of my grandfather's book is all about life at Mount Vernon from a children's, a child's point of view. And. Like I mentioned, my grandfather doesn't totally dodge the issue of slavery. But it's the way he talks about slavery at Mount Vernon that, once again, is incredibly problematic and provides an incredibly distorted view of American history. So let's jump right into it. Here are some of the sentences we're going to discover. On every plantation, the family's home was called the big house. The servants, notice that word again, servants, not slaves, the servants. The servants called it the big house because there were so many smaller houses on the plantation. Now, once again, on its face, that's true. The big house was called the big house because it was the biggest. But it was also called the big house because that's where the power was located. You don't get any sense of that, though, from these lines. It's simply big house in a very literal sense, not in the figurative sense that all of the power, the power of not just how hard someone worked and where they worked and whether or not they got paid wages. Not even that power, which was immense, but even the power of life and death. All of that existed. The nexus of all that was in the big house. None of that's mentioned. Then, Martha Washington is described. But from the perspective of Martha's granddaughter. So here's what it says about Martha Washington. Listen closely. Nellie's grandmother, a.k.a. Martha, taught her many things that the mistress of a plantation should know. Nellie saw that her grandmother had much to do. She had to plan meals for many people every day. 
She had to see about the cooking and the weaving and the sewing. When a servant was sick, she went to see him and took him medicine. She often took him something special to eat. So the mistress of the plantation had much to do. Must have been hard having so much to do with scores of slaves around to actually be required with the threat of violence or the actual act of violence to actually do all the doing. Martha Washington is so busy overseeing people who are actually working. But you don't get a sense of any of that, right? You're a fourth grader reading this textbook and all you get as the audience, the tone of this is just sympathy. You're meant to to feel bad for how tough it was for Martha Washington and to feel proud that she was such a good person and that she loved her servants, a.k.a. slaves, so much that she took them medicine and something special to eat. The entire focus is on how wonderful and hardworking Martha Washington is. Not how difficult and frustrating it must have been to be an enslaved person on the plantation of Mount Vernon. Not how resilient the slaves living on that plantation and on countless other plantations throughout the South must have been to create lives for themselves amidst the system that denies their very humanity. None of that is mentioned. But Martha Washington sure had to work hard. It continues. Talking about nurses on the plantation, which would have been enslaved women forced to nurse white children. And it's talking about George Washington's granddaughter and grandson. And it said, Nellie and young Washington love their nurse almost as much as they love their grandparents. Which may have been true. I'm not saying that's historically inaccurate. But what I would like to hear, as someone who is interested in the truth, who wants to be honest about America's past, I want to hear how that nurse felt about those grandkids. Because once again, there's this distortion that borders on erasure. The slaves, the enslaved people on Washington's plantation don't have any thoughts. They barely have any existence. Other than things to be overseen. Or as objects that the children can love. They're dehumanized to the point that they aren't even really subjects in this story. They are just objects. Things that can be acted on. Things that can be acted on. But not people. That exist and are ensnared in this hierarchy of racialized slavery. Nellie and young Washington love their nurse almost as much as they love their grandparents. And we're going to see that theme again of love between black and white, between slave owner and enslaved person. That theme is going to get repeated later in my grandfather's book. And that's a really, really insidious and dangerous part of the lost cause mythology. This notion that slavery was based at its core on love. Love between black and white. Love between slave owner and enslaved person. And to deny that is to misunderstand slavery. And if slavery was based on love, then it's not something that needs to be reconciled. It's not something that we need to hold ourselves accountable for. It's not something based on economic profit. So take that talk of reparations out of your mind. It was a loving relationship. Damn. That is some sneaky, sneaky fucking propaganda right there. Powerful, too. So let's move on. The only time that whipping or violence between individuals is even mentioned in my grandfather's textbook, and this jumped out at me just because of it being an exception, is a is a brief mention in a chapter about Cyrus McCormick, 
another slave owner, by the way, a Virginian slave owner, known for creating the idea of the mechanical reaper. And it's in reference to how young white children were sometimes whipped when they attended school in the early 19th century. So here's the passage. Each child stood in front of the teacher to recite his lessons. The school books had small print and just a few little black and white pictures in them. If a child did not know every word of his lessons, the teacher sent him back to study again. Often, the teacher whipped a boy who did not know his lessons. So once again, totally factually accurate. That is completely true. That is how schools would have operated, not only in the early 19th century, but for much of American history. Violence was a part of the hierarchical relationship between student and teacher. Totally true. But it blows my freaking mind that my grandfather is going to mention that violence. And never once in his textbook, never once in the 318 pages of his textbook, never once even wink at or hint at or imply, let alone explicitly state anything about the violence that enslaved people in the United States of America experienced at the hands of white people, whether it would have been their, the white owners on their plantations or white overseers or white slave catchers. Never once is that violence mentioned. Oh, that's right, because slavery was all about love between black and white. I forgot. But that just that passage really stood out to me. Let's move ahead in history to the Civil War. Which in this textbook, as in many textbooks throughout the South, the Civil War is referred to as the war between the states. And that's a brilliant piece of phraseology right there, the war between the states. Because if you call it the war between the states, you totally obscure, you totally cover up the fact that Objectively, you could refer to the Civil War as an insurrection or a treasonous rebellion on the part of the Confederacy. Americans taking up arms against the American government. But to refer to that, to refer to the Civil War in that way, would puncture this lost cause mythology that we've talked about already. Now, Slavery is discussed in the Civil War chapter. And at first, when I'm breaking down this book before I got on the air with you guys, when I was looking at different passages and making my notes, I was worried that my grandfather might be so slick as to pull so much of a fast one that he would write about the Civil War and not even mention slavery once. He didn't, didn't go that far. Here's what he says about slavery in the Civil War. And this is at the beginning of the chapter entitled, The War Between the States Begins. Northern and Southern people did not think alike about slavery. The Northern people did not need much help to work their small farms. The planters in Virginia and in the South needed many men to work for them. They had slaves to do their work. So in some ways that's true. By, the, by 1860, when Lincoln was elected, slavery did not exist, at least in a legal sense, anywhere in the North. The vast majority of, of states in the North, north of the Mason-Dixon line, had ended slavery in their state constitutions that were created in the wake of the American Revolution, either ended it immediately or in some, case, in some cases gradually. And much of that was driven by geographic and economic concerns. Here's the phrase that really jumps out to me. The South needed many men to work for them. As if slavery wasn't an active choice. As if slavery in America wasn't something that was based on an economic profit motive, which it entirely was. It wasn't even based on race. Remember, race is created after slavery to justify the enslavement of thousands and millions of people. 
Slavery was at its heart about greed. I'm trying to get fucking paid. That's what slavery was about. But sentences like this obscure that once again. The South needed many men to work for them. Now, it also obscures the fact that there were plenty of men in the South, whether we're talking about enslaved people or poor whites who would have gladly worked as farmers and owned small farms or worked on the larger farms of large landowners and worked for wages. Like, once again, creating an economic system based on slavery wasn't something that happened accidentally in the South or in other parts of the New World. It was an active, conscious decision. Let's continue to see what my grandfather says about slavery in the Civil War. By this time, and this time in this textbook is 1860-61, southern states are seceding beginning in 1860 with Lincoln's election in November up into the spring of 61. By this time, many people knew that slavery was wrong. That sentence really surprised me. I'll be honest. I didn't expect him to ever even mention that that was the case in anyone's mind. And so kudos for that sentence. In 318 pages, we found one sentence that acknowledges the horrendous moral shittiness that slavery is. The horrendous moral cowardice that slavery is. But then he immediately kind of backtracks on that sentence. By this time, many people knew that slavery was wrong. But the planters, the poor planters, he doesn't say the poor planters, those are my words, so let me just stick to his words. Quote, but the planters did not know how they could free their slaves and keep their plantations going. Well, one, they could free their slaves and pay them wages. Or two, who the fuck cares if they kept their plantations growing or going? Freudian slip, growing, going. They both work. I don't know if that's Freudian either. But I digress. Back to that sentence. So once again, even when slavery is acknowledged explicitly, the spotlight is in no way placed on enslaved people. And once again, they are in no way treated like actual subjects, but rather like objects. The spotlight is placed on the planners. Poor Martha Washington, how hard it must be to run a slave plantation. These poor southern plantation owners, how are they going to keep their plantations going if we end slavery? And then the rest of that chapter talks about states' rights. in between glorifying various Confederate leaders. And we haven't even talked about how the, the white heroes in this book are described. We'll get to that. But states' rights, that's a dangerous phrase. And that phrase still shows up in curricula of modern-day public schooling in America. I know for a fact, because as a history teacher in Virginia, I know that the Virginia SOLs for 11th grade Require me, beg of me, demand of me that I teach states' rights as a cause of the Civil War. And if you want to get euphemistic, sure, states' rights were a cause. But there's only really one right in 1860 that southern states were concerned about. And that's the right to enslave other humans. They would have called it maybe property rights, because once again, just like in my grandfather's textbook, the enslaved people that they are making millions, if not billions, off of collectively are not considered human. But to say the Civil War was caused by states' rights is to play a shell game. To pretend that there were this whole long list of rights that the southern states were worried about were being violated. Bullshit. No intellectually honest historian in his or her right mind would agree to that statement. There is not a laundry, laundry list of states' rights that are being violated or that Southerners even thought were being violated. The Civil War, and the Southern states, to their credit at the time, were very clear about this. If you read the primary source material, if you read their documents that were created, their statements that come out of these secessionist conventions, Southerners wanted the right 
to enslave people of African descent and continue with their racialized hierarchy and their way of life. Period. That's it. That's what they wanted. And they were worried that Lincoln's election and the ascendancy of this newly formed Republican Party threatened that. But states' rights. In fact, the phrase states' rights shows up more than slavery in this textbook. So once again, we're obscuring history to the point of erasing, not only erasing events and facts, but erasing the existence of actual human beings. Let's move on. I told y'all we'll, we'll discuss, if we have time, how, how white folks are, are treated throughout this textbook. Needless to say, Robert E. Lee is treated like a god on earth. And so just real quickly, I'll give you this sentence. General Lee was a handsome man with a kind, strong face. He sat straight and firm in his saddle. Traveler, General Lee's horse, stepped proudly as if he knew that he carried a great general. So now, once again, we're understanding how so many white Americans in 2020 can have the opinion that they do. How so many white Americans in 2020 won't shed a tear about the murder of black people at the hands of police but will be distraught at the suggestion that we should take down statues of men like General Lee. It's because textbooks like this. Lee is a hero. Slavery is barely, if ever, mentioned. If it is mentioned, it's described as the work of servants. If the relationship between enslaved people and those who claim to own them is mentioned, it's one of love and fraternity. It is no wonder that people in 2020 are so confused. And so unable to see the need for racial justice and for a national reckoning with our white supremacist past and present. But I don't want to get caught up on Robert E. Lee. Not to mention, if you're more interested in Lee, there's a lot of research on him as a slave owner as well that you can dig into. Episode nine, I'm going to share a whole bibliography with you, with you guys. And hopefully by episode nine, I'll learn how to pronounce bibliography consistently correctly so that I don't sound like I just did about 10 seconds ago. But we'll get to that in episode nine. Moving on deeper into the Civil War. Some really problematic sentences coming up. I know I keep repeating that, but it's true. I quote. Some Negro servants left the plantation because they heard that President Lincoln was going to set them free. But most of the Negroes stayed on the plantations and went on with their work. Some of them risked their lives to protect the white people they loved. What in the... I don't want to curse too much. I know this is grown folks talking, but what in the fuck... So let's start with the first part. Some of the Negro servants, notice he's still not calling them slaves or enslaved people, which is a much better term. Some of the Negro servants left the plantation because they heard that President Lincoln was going to set them free. And this is key because a lot of white Americans don't get this. A lot of black Americans don't get this. A lot of Americans don't get this. Thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of enslaved people left their plantations during the Civil War prior to the Emancipation Proclamation. Not because they necessarily heard Lincoln was planning to set them free, but because they understood what was going on currently. They understood that the Civil War was their opportunity to force the United States government to come up with legislation first in the form of an, of an executive order and later in the form of amendment to force the hand of Lincoln in the U.S. government. They knew their labor was valuable. They knew that this was their chance. And this is not how we teach 
emancipation in this country. We teach it more from a white savior angle. Lincoln saved the slaves. When in reality, there was a complex dance going on between enslaved people in the South, Union commanders, and then the Union government in the North. And there are many historians today who I think would be comfortable saying that slaves were leaving their plantations in such large numbers and showing up at Union camps, showing up behind Union lines, that they forced Lincoln to do something. And it was brilliant. Think about it. They knew that the Union was not interested in sending them back to their plantations because they were valuable. They were keeping the South fed. They were doing the labor of the South as they had always done. And eventually, because some Union generals realized this early in the Civil War, and eventually Lincoln realizes it as well, that not only are these slaves valuable as labor, so let's take them off their plantations or let's sanction what they're already doing, taking themselves off the plantations. But then we can also give them guns and set them loose down south. Because don't forget, a quarter of a million, if not more, formerly enslaved individuals ended up fighting in the Union Army and fighting with great distinction in many cases. So even that sentence about some of the servants leaving the plantations because they heard Lincoln was going to set them free kind of distorts the true nature of that relationship. But then we get, we just fucking get totally crazy with this last part. Some of them risked their lives to protect the white people they loved. Now, is it possible there were some slaves who risked their lives during the Civil War to protect their white slave owners? Sure. Not only possible, I'm pretty sure it happened. But I promise you, if you look at the historical data, if you read the research, if you read what historians who are a lot more educated on this matter than I am, that those slaves who are risking their lives to protect the so-called white people they love, I got so-called wrong in that sentence, to protect the white people they so-called love, that those slaves are the exception by and large. That the vast majority, overwhelming majority of enslaved people in the South fully understood that the Civil War, they understood the causes of it, first of all, and they understood it was their opportunity to press for full and permanent emancipation. Once again, though, my grandfather is introducing this notion of love, that slavery was at its heart a system based on love, not on greed, not on profit, not on exploitation, not on immorality, but love. Damn, that's hard to read. That is, that's tough. Moving on to the end of slavery. A chapter entitled, After the War Was Over. Here is how emancipation is discussed. In the very beginning of the chapter. The war between the states was over and the North had won. All the slaves were set free. The Confederate States of America was no longer a nation. All the slaves were set free. Notice that sentence. There's no one. Notice the passive construction of that sentence. Were set free. Like it almost just happened. Or even worse, like the South decided to do it of its own accord. It doesn't talk about the role that enslaved people had in setting themselves free that we just discussed. It doesn't talk about the, that the entire war was basically a second American revolution that led to the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment. All the slaves were set free. There's no guilt in a sentence like that. There's no need for the Southerners or white Americans to be accountable in, with a sentence like that. They were just set free. Just happened. And then we get to Virginia post-Civil War. 
And as much as the historian of me is bothered by how my grandfather describes Virginia before the Civil War and how my grandfather describes slavery and race, even though that's a word he never uses anywhere in this book, before the Civil War, what bothers me even more, because I think it's more relevant to the current moment in 2020, is how he talks about Virginia post-Civil War. And what he says about Jim Crow, well, let me back up. What he says about Reconstruction, then what he says about Jim Crow and segregation and lynching, disenfranchisement, the civil rights movement. Here's what he says about all of those things. Here's what he says about Reconstruction, Jim Crow, slash segregation, disenfranchisement, lynchings, and the civil rights movement. Here's what he says. Absolutely nothing. Not a single mention of any of that. The only time he even hints at anything remotely related to any of that in Virginia or in the country as a whole post-Civil War is when he spends a few paragraphs talking about Booker T. Washington. And I don't have time today to go into how controversial Booker T.'s legacy is as a civil rights leader, as a black leader. Booker T. was a, was not, not was, is a fascinating historical figure an infinitely complex historical figure. But here's what my grandfather says about Booker T. After talking about him attending Hampton Institute, which is today Hampton University, and then going on to help establish Tuskegee Institute, he says that some of his friends were white people and some were Negroes. Booker T. Washington believed that white and Negro people should always be friends. That's it. He never even mentions why Booker T would be forced to attend Hampton Institute and not William and Mary, for instance, which was down the street, more or less. Or why he would be forced to attend Hampton and not the University of Virginia, for instance. Or why it was so important that he established Tuskegee. Because segregation is never even mentioned. Jim Crow laws are never mentioned. Sharecropping's never mentioned. Lynchings are never mentioned. This, to me, this total silence on the, the firm, permanent, seemingly permanent establishment of white supremacy throughout Virginia and throughout the South is, to me, perhaps the biggest sin of this textbook. Because now what he's done, whether he intended to or not, is beside the point. What my grandfather's done in his textbook, with his textbook, is told his audience that slavery wasn't bad at all, because he never mentions any of the ways it could have been bad, that it was based on love, that it ended a long time ago, and that since then, There's nothing to worry about. There are no racial problems. There are no problems with white supremacy in this country. How would anyone read this textbook and know anything about why the civil rights movement even existed? Of course, someone who was taught out of this textbook or its equivalent would see people like Dr. King, not to mention Malcolm and others, as troublemakers. Of course they would see the civil rights movement as an insidious plot to destroy America. Of course they would have trouble understanding the need for civil rights legislation, whether we're talking about it in the 60s or in the 21st century. Of course they would have no reason to support reparations. Never once was slavery even tied to economic gain. 
Of course they would have, they would find it almost impossible to wrap their minds around the racial reckoning that America is experiencing now. Because this textbook doesn't give them the language to understand any of that I just described. And so their reaction is now as frustrating as it is, at least I hope it's understanding, understandable. Sorry. Their reaction is one of utter bafflement because they haven't been given the tools. They haven't been given the language to have a meaningful conversation about any of the things I just mentioned about voter suppression and disenfranchisement about generational wealth and how it's tied into white supremacy, about residential segregation and how that's tied into white supremacy, about school segregation and how that's tied into white supremacy, about reparations, about land ownership, about the violence that enslaved people and then their ancestors have experienced at the hands of police and mobs and other white individuals and groups. If you read this textbook, you have no way of coming to terms with any of that. Sorry. That pause wasn't meant to be that long. I can see we're running up against our time limit. I always make it my goal to not take more than an hour of y'all's time. So episode nine, now that we have thoroughly dissected, vivisected my grandfather's textbook, episode nine, I'm going to share with you some of my thoughts about what all this means to me personally as the grandson of the man who wrote this book. But more importantly, as the grandson who adored his grandfather and in many ways still does. So I'm going to try and talk about all those psychological and emotional threads and put a bow on this discussion that began back in episode seven. As always, I appreciate y'all for supporting me, for joining me on this journey. I hope you found it entertaining, fruitful, informative. I hope it's given you things to think about. Please reach out. You know I want to hear from y'all. You know I need to hear from y'all. My email has not, will not change. JamesLincoln313 at Gmail. Keep your hearts and your minds open. Peace and love. I'm out.